Thank you so much, Scott and Lenore. As we continue through the book of Hebrews, if you have a copy of God's Word, please open it uh, with me or power up your Bible app on your device. We'd love to have you follow along. As we begin the message today, I want to start by diving right into the deep end of the pool with a, a very rich and significant theological quote. And so this quote comes from a Scottish theologian named James Denny, uh, and he said this, there is something in the conscience that will not allow it to believe that God will simply condone sin. There is something in the conscience that will not allow it to believe that God will simply condone sin. I think that is so true. Uh, Now, my experience as a pastor is that everybody wrestles with that. Now, they may not always wrestle with it in those terms, but they wrestle with it. There are decisions that they've made in the past. There's choices that they've made in, in previous experience, and um, they, they, they have this guilt. They have this shame. Everybody carries it around. We don't quite know what to do with it, and we don't quite know how to get rid of it. How about you? There's things in your past that you know that you have done and that you, you're just kind of embarrassed about it. Like there's, there's those thing that, things that you did when, when you were younger, uh, or, or there's, there's that that thing that you did when, when you were back in college. Or, you know, there's that, there's that one weekend, or there's that thing with the money, or there, there's, that, there's that, that thing at work, and you hope nobody ever asks you about that, and, and maybe they never do, and maybe nobody else actually does know about that. But here's the thing. You know. You know about that. And you try not to think about it, and you try not to dwell on it, you try to forget about it, but here's the thing, unless you have amnesia or some sort of TBI, you can't forget about it. It's always still there, and it just kind of haunts you. Don't get me wrong, there are things that we have done in the past that we look back upon, and we, you know, I mean, they were just kind of silly and funny. I mean, you know, when we were young and stupid, we were young and, and stupid. I'm so thankful that social media did not exist when I was in high school so that those things are not eternally preserved uh, for the rest of the world for all of time. But th- that's not actually what I'm talking about. There, there's other things that we look back upon in our past, and they are just not funny. And they're just never going to be funny. And, and we think about those things, and we go, those were sinful and it's like this weight that we carry around. It's like this cloud that we live underneath of. And we go, how, how do I actually escape from this, this cloud? We know we're guilty. And, and what I found out as a pastor is that even Christians wrestle with this. Even those who understand the good news of the gospel, for those who have been in earshot of uh, the news about Jesus Christ, even believers wrestle with this as well. And it's like they know about God's mercy intellectually in their heads, but then there's, there's a foot of space between their head and their heart, and, and, and it hasn't quite made it down there. And so deep down they wonder, like, okay, I, I hear this with my, my ears and my mind, but is there any way, Pastor Dave, that I can, like, feel it? Is there any way that I can, like, feel forgiven? Like, it's done. It's washed away. Like, I'm, I don't have to worry about this anymore. I'm clean. It's gone. Is, is there any way that I can feel forgiven of my sin? Now, that is a really good question. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's a good question. That is a good question. The answer to that haunting question is in our text today. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through chapter 5 and verse 10. The title of the message is Jesus, our great high priest. Here this morning, we're going to look at 
what is the dominant theme of the whole book of Hebrews. The, the writer spends chapters 4 all the way through chapter 10 centered around on this one theme of Jesus and his high priesthood. If you miss this theme, like you missed his whole point, if you don't get this, then you're, getting, you're, you're losing the most important part of this letter. And so we have to focus in on what this author is talking about here in three different movements today. First, we're going to see the invitation of our high priest. Then we're going to see the qualifications of our high priest, and then we will see the coronation of our high priest, the invitation, the qualifications, and the coronation. Before we do that, why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we are aware that we do so with humility, and so by faith we believe this is your inspired scriptures. You're the sovereign God of the universe. You are present with us. This book is from you. Through it, you teach your people, and we just ask that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us a heart to believe. Would you just give us a mustard seed of faith this morning, and then grow it so that what happens here in our hearts today cannot be explained apart from you being at work mightily here. And we ask that, and we'll be careful to give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, point number one, the invitation of the high priest. The author kind of starts with the application of everything he's about to say here in chapter four. So we'll start there. The invitation says this, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pause there. What I want you to notice in this first section is that this is a tremendous invitation. It is an invitation to a throne. It is an invitation to a throne that the writer calls the throne of grace. Now, there's a lot of other words the writer could have used to describe this throne. He could have called it the throne of holiness or the throne of God's power or the throne of God's glory, and all of those in some ways would be accurate, but notice God does not say it that way. He says, come to my throne of grace. Approach my throne. Uh, the word approach there means come near in the context of worship and prayer. Who can come? We remember from the Old Testament priestly system, that it was only certain individuals who could approach God's presence in the temple. But now here, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ may approach this throne of grace, and you might do it with confidence. Did you see that word? The word there means a certain boldness, that we might come without any hesitation, that we might come into God's presence without any inhibition whatsoever. This invitation is given to you to speak freely to your God with confidence and with boldness. And the invitation comes from one who is our empathetic high priest. The word empathy, empathy there uh, literally means to uh, understand and take on someone else's suffering as if it is your own suffering, to suffer along with someone. Commentator Dr. Richard Phillips in uh, speaking about this passage, says this, quote, this is a point the author has made before, so it must be an important one. The Lord you serve, the Savior to whom you look, is not aloof from your trials. 
but feels them with intimate acquaintance. He is not disinterested or cold to what you are going through. He came to this earth and took up our human nature precisely so that he might now be able to have a fellow feeling with us. Therefore, he is eminently able to represent you before the throne of his heavenly Father, pleading your cause, securing your place, and procuring the spiritual resources you need. This high priest can empathize with you. Friends, there is no emotion that you will experience in the human life that the Lord Jesus has not also experienced. Fear, doubt, discouragement, grief, pain. Whatever it is, the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, is able to empathize with you. He knows what it is like. He knows what it is like to face rejection. He knows what it is like to face suffering. He knows what it's like to face the loss of a loved one. He knows what it's like to face his own death. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been mocked? Have you ever been broken? Have you ever been through excruciating physical suffering? Friends, so has your great high priest. Friends, there is also, as you see here in the text, no temptation that you and I will ever face that he did not also face. You'll recall in the gospel story, such as in Matthew chapter 4, Satan himself comes to tempt the Lord Jesus. Now, the text does not mean that he experienced every single detail of every single kind of temptation that we face. What it means is he faced every category of temptation that human beings face. Namely, 1 John says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Jesus knows, I think, even more than you and I know, the full force of the enemy, because when the enemy comes at us, we give in to temptation, whereas Jesus never gave in to temptation. He was completely without sin, and so the devil had to give him everything that he had. He understands when you are tempted. So you are coming to someone who is an empathetic high priest, and the invitation to you and I, friends, is to come to come with prayer, to come with confidence, to come with this boldness so that we might receive a few things in our time of need. That's the invitation. It's a standing invitation to all of those who will place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever you find yourself, have you fallen into sin? Come to the throne of grace. Have you drifted away from the Lord? Come to the throne of grace. Have you done something that you regret? and you're not sure how to handle that, the answer is come to the throne of grace. This is the great invitation. There are two resources found here at this throne. I want you to notice it is the resource of mercy and grace, two concepts that are somewhat related in the Christian life, but yet they they are distinct in this way. Mercy means God does not give me the consequence and punishment that I do deserve, whereas grace means God actually bestows upon me the blessing uh, that I don't deserve. So mercy is him withholding judgment that I do deserve, and then grace is him bestowing blessing that I don't deserve. Mercy and grace. Of course, this implies saving grace, but I believe here It's appropriate to say for technical reasons that he's also talking about something in the Christian life that we call sustaining grace. Grace to sustain us in our every trial. We ask, I don't know how somebody could go through that, but yet if God calls us to go through that, right before we go through that, he will give us the sustaining grace we need to face anything he brings our way. 
This is the promise. This is the invitation. We can find help in our time of need. Is there anybody here this morning in a time of need? Perhaps there's a health situation you're facing this morning. The injunction is to approach the throne of grace. Perhaps you're struggling in your marriage. The injunction here is to approach the throne of grace. Perhaps you have a need that is a family member who maybe is unsaved or you need to speak with them and you're not exactly sure how that's going to go. The injunction here is to approach the throne of grace. Maybe there's a sin that you're wrestling with from your past. The injunction is to approach the throne of grace. What is it that you need this morning? Whatever it is you need, the response here is to approach the throne of grace. The, the title of our series is Greater Than. The writer of the Hebrews is making this case that Jesus is greater than all. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. Here we're going to see he's greater than Aaron. And, and by extension, we also believe that Jesus is greater than everything we face too. He's greater than our problems. He's greater than every obstacle that could ever come in our way. Jesus is truly greater than all. And I really want you to personalize that message. Here's just a few examples of some folks who have, who have personalized this message. Something tangible we're doing throughout this series is in the foyer, there's this backdrop of a boxing ring, and we have some signs out there with some, some black magic markers, and we just invite you to take a sign and just fill in the blank, and then communicate with us, email us, and so we can support each other during this series. It'll be a great encouragement. But what is that for you? Jesus is greater than what obstacle you're facing. What are you facing right now? What obstacle are you facing right now? that you're praying for God's sustaining grace in your life. Here's the invitation. Approach the throne of grace and find help in your time of need. Now, why is this possible? Why is this application possible? The, the writer's going to now turn his attention toward the reason why this is all possible, this wonderful invitation, this wonderful promise of chapter 4. Now we're going to turn to chapter 5 and look at the reason why it's possible is because we have a high priest who is eminently qualified. As we see his qualifications, we see that, that he is the perfect man for the job. You know, if you apply for a job, typically there's an application, and, and sometimes they list a bunch of things on the job description, qualities that are needed in order for you to be able to fulfill this particular position, right? Uh, in the Bible, you have to go to Leviticus 8, 9, and 10 and chapter 16 to find all of the qualifications for a priest. You don't have to go there right now, but the writer here in Hebrews is going to summarize those qualifications for us here in the beginning of chapter 5. Take a look. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going are going astray, since he, the earthly priest, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. So pause right there. Did you notice the qualifications? The first qualification that stands right out is that a high priest has to be appointed and selected by God. This is not a position that you just volunteer for. Hey, I'll be the high priest this year. No, you, you are selected and you are appointed by God himself. Of course, we know that God had appointed in Exodus, 16, Exodus 28 uh, Aaron to be the high priest in the high priestly line. But beyond that, uh, the one in the line that was selected to be the high priest was a selection process by God himself. Secondly, the high priest had to represent humanity. You'll notice in verse 1 that the job of the priest is to represent the people to God. 
And so therefore, a high priest must be well acquainted with the human condition in order to do so. See, a high priest was like a mediator. It's, it was like a go-between, right? Like in the book of Ezekiel, it says, I search for a man to stand in the gap, someone to, to be in between human beings and God, an advocate, someone with the, both the knowledge and the ability to step up on our behalf, to step up to the bench, to step up to the, to the bar of divine justice and plead our case on our behalf. And how did he do that? Well, verse 3 tells us. He did that by making sacrifices for the people. He did that by offering blood sacrifices. We see in verse 3, he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. But we also see that the writer here says that the, in, in terms of the Levitical priesthood, this priest himself was sinful. And so first he would have to offer the blood of a bull in order to cover the sins of himself and his family. And then the priest could offer the blood of a goat to cover the sins of the rest of the people. You see, if you wanted to go into the presence of God, into the temple of God, you, you actually had to pass by three different altars prior to you getting to the, the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. You didn't just waltz into the temple uh, to worship. You approached God with blood. Now, in our day, I know this seems so foreign. This seems like, what in the world? This is not our society. But in the first century when this was written, there was temples everywhere. There was priests everywhere. This was extremely common in their culture. Of course, there was a working Levitical priesthood happening in Jerusalem as well. And so we read this, and from our cultural lenses, we go, what? you know, this just does not relate to me. Our culture finds this whole concept to be very culturally regressive. It's offensive. It's disgusting. It's so primitive. It's so obscene. Christianity has been referred to as the religion of the slaughterhouse. People say, there's enough blood in this world. Isn't there a solution available that doesn't need blood? Surely we don't need more blood. And yet you and I know, as followers of the Lord Jesus and as Christianity proclaims, there is power in the blood. Amen. Spiritually speaking, it's always been that way. You'll recall from the story of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first sinned and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Was that an acceptable covering to the Lord? No. In fact, God slays an animal and brings them skin coverings in order that their sin might be atoned for temporarily. It has always been that way. You remember in the next chapter with Cain and Abel and the story of those two guys. Each of them bring a sacrifice and an offering to God. Which one did God accept? Abel's. Oh, but Cain, do you have any idea how much work it took to plow the field, get all the way to the end of harvest, and then harvest all of the crop, and then bring all of that to God? Cain worked so hard for his. But you cannot work in order to atone for your own sin. It has always been through a blood sacrifice. Do you recall the story of the Passover when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and, and, and the way in which God decided to spare the firstborn sons of Israel? He said, take a lamb and slay the lamb and then smear the blood all over your doorpost. And when I see the blood, then I will pass over you. It's always been the blood. 
And finally, as the writer to the Hebrews is referring here, on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the priest had to kill a goat and sprinkle blood onto the mercy seat. Why? Because God has always said to us, when it comes to your sin, a blood sacrifice will be required. Hebrews chapter 9.25 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, why is that necessary? Have you ever thought about why is this necessary? This is what our culture wants to know from us. Why can't God, if he's so loving, why can't he just let it go? Why can't God just, you know, sweep it under the rug? And the answer, according to the scriptures, is that God is holy and that your sin is serious. And even in the human realm, when someone sins against you, there is consequences for that sin. This is why the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, if you've ever really forgiven anybody, then you know forgiveness means suffering. Forgiveness means suffering for you. If anybody's ever wronged you, really wronged you, there's no such thing as letting it go. There's no such thing as sweeping it under the rug. There's, there's a debt that's been incurred. Someone has to absorb the debt. The one who forgives is the one who actually has to suffer and absorb the debt of what occurred. And so forgiveness really means suffering. Forgiveness means agony. Forgiveness means pain. Forgiveness means nails. Forgiveness means the crown of thorns. Forgiveness means a cross. Forgiveness means blood. And God has been telling us this from the earliest pages of Scripture. The blood was significant. First of all, the blood implied some sort of brokenness on our part. If you're bleeding, you're hurt. You're injured, right? We bleed when we are broken. Spiritually speaking, God says, you're broken on the inside. You know, the book of Jeremiah says, they treat my sins as if the wound was not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. It's like that comedy sketch. I don't know if this is the right time for humor, but that, you know that Monty Python and the Holy Grail comedy sketch where there's, there's these two guys having a duel and they have the swords out and, and they're fighting and, and then the one guy, he actually chops off the guy's arm. It's supposed to be funny. It doesn't seem funny right now, but he chops off the guy's arm and the guy keeps fighting. He's like, oh, well, your arm, it's on the ground. It's about to scratch. Let's go. It's just a flesh wound, right? The guy's like, your arm is on the ground, man. It's serious. You're bleeding. This is spiritually speaking what, what God tells his people. Like, your wound is serious. It, it's a, you're not going to fix this with a little education. Your sin has led to your brokenness spiritually. Secondly, the significance of the blood implies guilt. Isaiah chapter 59, your sins have separated you from, from me. Isaiah 59, 3, your hands are stained with blood. We're guilty. We, we're complicit. We have a saying, right? You have blood on your hands. The blood implies guilt. We, we have guilt for our sin. We're the ones culpable. It's not anybody else's fault. We're guilty. Period. Full stop. Nobody to blame. Third, the blood implied a permanent stain. You ever try to get blood out of your clothes? The blood implies a stain spiritually. It's like in the Shakespeare play when Lady Macbeth talks about a murder and says, we've got damn spots and we can't get them out. There's this stain, this spiritual stain on us because of sin. And we ask with the hymn writer, what can wash away my sin? Four. And finally, the blood was significant because it reminded us that the wages of sin is death. When you would bring your animal and leave it at the altar and watch it bleed to death, that was a visual reminder that the penalty for sin is death. 
separation. Separation of the soul from God. Separation, isolation. This is the penalty of sin. Alienation. And so that's what the blood means. And so one of the qualifications of a priest is that he brings blood. So we see three things. We see that a priest is appointed by God. We see that a priest has to represent humanity. And then third, we see that a priest had to bring blood. Now, when the letter was written, the letter to the Hebrews was written, this was in the first century, around the year A.D. 60, A.D. 65. This was prior to the Jerusalem temple having fallen. This was, there was a working Levitical priesthood happening in Jerusalem. There was temples. Uh, there was a temple. There was priests working at the temple, offering sacrifices. And so, to some extent, the author here is inviting you to have a choice. There are two kinds of priests to which you can choose. You can choose the earthly priesthood functioning in the earthly temple in Jerusalem, or you can go to the priest functioning in the heavenly places, appointed not by man, but appointed by God himself, not from the line of Levi, he says from a spiritual line, from the line of Melchizedek. Now, before I lose you, Melchizedek, it's this character from Genesis chapter 14 who comes onto the pages of the Bible. Uh, he's also mentioned once in Psalm 110, and many of us have never heard of this man. He, he, he's not a very popular Old Testament Sunday school story. You don't go teach the kids about Melchizedek. He, you know, he didn't like slay any giants or, or no, there's no walls that fell down with Melchizedek. It's just kind of an obscure figure that shows up on the pages of Genesis chapter 14. Yet, the writer to the Hebrews mentions this person eight different times. And the reason is because this mysterious figure teaches us something extremely significant about the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, especially in chapter 7. Take a look at the first few verses. This Melchizedek was king of Salem, or Shalom, and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So Melech means king, Tzadok means righteousness. Then also, this is his title, he was the king of Salem, Shalom, the king of peace. Many people believe he was the king of Jerusalem at the time. So there's Melchizedek. And the very unique thing about Melchizedek, the only thing you need to remember is that Melchizedek was both a king and a priest at the same time. And that leads us to movement three. We've seen the invitation of our high priest. We've seen the qualifications of our high priest. And now, ladies and gentlemen, buckle your seat belts. We're about to see something that has never occurred before, the coronation of a high priest. I think we've heard the word corona, maybe more than we would like to hear it this year, but we all know that the word corona means crown because of the crown-like structures around the coronavirus. We've heard that word so often. A coronation is, is a crowning ceremony when the king received his crown and ascended to the throne. Here, the writer to the Hebrews is building a case that there is a priest who was also crowned king. He was both a priest and a a king. And the reason this is so significant is because there are no other priests who are also kings in the whole Bible, just this one Melchizedek guy. And the writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus is in this line, the line where there's a kingly office and a priestly office, and they come together all in the same person. The reason this is so unusual is because priests and kings had very different offices, 
right? It was the king's job to enforce the law of God upon the people and, and represent God's law to the people. By contrast, it was the priest's job to represent the people to God when they had broken that same law. And so you see how these two offices are utterly opposed to one another? The king, if you will, is like a stern father figure who holds the line, the disciplinarian. The priest is like the tender mother figure, unconditional mercy and love and grace. Now, that's a stereotype, I know, but how many of you recognize that maybe when you were growing up, one of your parents was very strict and very, you know, enforced the rules, whereas the other parent was always a little bit more lenient and a little bit easier on you? How many of you recognize that, that dichotomy maybe in your own home? Yeah, it, it happens. Um, you know what I'm talking about. It is very difficult to do both. It is very very hard to walk that line. I find as a parent it is really challenging to do both of these things well. And it is rare when you find a parent who can consistently do both of these roles in perfect balance all the time. This is what's so amazing about the Lord Jesus. He is not just a king. He is not just a priest. He's both a king and a priest. He's absolutely committed to both. When you read the gospel stories and you read these depictions of Jesus and the conversations that he has, he is displayed in such a beautiful, attractive, wonderfully balanced way. Probably my favorite example of this is John chapter 8 when there's this woman caught in adultery. You'll recall the story. They brought this woman before the Lord Jesus trying to trap him and there she is in all of her shame exposed and they bring her out publicly to stone her and they say, let's see how Jesus handles this situation. It's just a flawless example of this perfect combination on the screen. Jesus says, not diminishing the law of God whatsoever, let the one without sin cast the first stone. Of course, they all, one by one, it says from the oldest of them to the youngest of them, drop their stones and walk away. He turns to the woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? She says, they're all gone. And he says this, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Perfectly upholding the perfect law of God as king and also perfectly offering her mercy and grace as the high priest. Jesus is so perfectly balanced as priest and king. I'm not like that. When, when I am truthful, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I can be overbearing. No amens for my kids over there. <laughs> Jesus is not like that. When he is tough, he does not hurt. On the other hand, when I am seeking to be gracious, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I can be too permissive. Not Jesus. When Jesus is kind, he is not soft. See, he said things like, all authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me. And he also said, but the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, he said things like, he holds all things together by the word of his power. Yet, it also says, and a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He's the perfect combination of the priest and the king. He, he is the lion and he is the lamb. 
The Apostle John said in John chapter 1, we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isn't he lovely? Isn't the Lord Jesus so compelling and attractive and beautiful? He is our great high priest, and he is also our exalted king, sitting down on the throne, ruling the entire universe, and sitting down on that same throne, having finished his work of sacrifice and priesthood. As a result, he has no rival. He has no equal. Now and forevermore he reigns. And the writer says in chapter 7, verse 26, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, those in Jerusalem functioning over there in the shadow, in the picture, the, the ultimate reality has come. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, 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 no. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Here's the ultimate balance of his priestly work and kingly work. Verse 27 is referring to a very specific day in history. We call that day Good Friday. It was a day of sadness. It was a day of confusion. Few, if any, really knew what was happening on that day. But as the darkness covered the land, under the shadow of one dying on a cross as a convicted criminal, all of a sudden, out of that darkness, there was a cry. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani! My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who is this that shouts like this? And why does he shout? And what difference does it make to me? And what, what rel does it mean anything to us today? The answer is this is our high priest who is also our king. The answer is yes, it makes all the difference in the world. It means all of our forgiveness. It means all of our hope is wrapped up in the events of Good Friday when the veil was torn in the temple, that Jesus was taking on the condemnation of the just law of God and upholding perfectly the law of God as king and also as priest, extending mercy and grace all at the same time. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is only one who could be both our priest and king and therefore there is now a fountain filled with blood Amen. drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So here's my sign for today. And maybe you need the same sign. Jesus is greater than my sin and my guilt. Jesus is greater than my sin and my guilt. Now, you don't have to believe this, but I just want you to know, you don't have to carry that sin around anymore. I just want you to know that there was one who came to take your sin on his back and lift up your sin carry it off.
As John the Baptist said to him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what you need. That's what I need. Now, let me ask you a very personal question. What do you do with your guilt? Let me give you some options. Option one, like most people, you can choose to repress it. Push it down. Shove it aside. Don't think about it. Delete your history. Just pretend like it never happened. But yet, we remember from last week, Hebrews 4.13 said, nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And if you have any spiritual awareness at all, that verse causes you some great fear. I don't recommend repressing it. Option two, you can run away from it. Oh, so many people decide to run away from it. We run away from God. We not only run away from things, we run to other things, other gods. The idols of alcohol, the idols of drugs, the idols of other things that will numb our consciences and, and help us get rid of this feeling of guilt. We can run away. But there will come a time where we can run and no longer hide. Option three. This is the most popular option in our culture. Rationalize it. Blame somebody else. Listen, I'm not as bad as so-and-so over there. Yes, I did this. Look at what they did. Put your attention over there. Hey, it's modern culture. Like, you know, we have to be more tolerant nowadays. I don't want to be judgy. Rationalize. None of these options work. Can I just plead with you to choose option four? Reconcile with God. But if you want to reconcile with God, you must come his way. And he says, you come through the blood. One more verse. Hebrews 7.25, and we'll finish with this verse today. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Amen. Now you have a choice. The choice is right there on the screen. When you stand before the bar of divine justice, you can choose to represent yourself or you can choose someone else to intercede for you. The word intercede there is a technical term. It had a legal meaning. It meant to appear as a representative in court for somebody on trial. This is an invitation for you to accept an attorney on your behalf, for you to uh, accept that in the courtroom of God, when there's any charges laid against you, you can have a representative, and he will intercede on your behalf. Now, if you go to court, let me ask you this question. How do you appear in court? The answer is, you appear... However your attorney appears, if your attorney is really, really sharp, and if your attorney has this brilliant case, all of that gets imputed to you. However, if your attorney is terrible, and they're not doing a good job making your defense, and their case is just blowing up, all of that gets imputed to you. And so here's the choice that's set before us. We can choose to appear and represent ourselves, or... We can have this representative, an advocate. And let me tell you, this advocate has a case. It is a watertight case. Listen very carefully. This is the case that he makes. Now, let me start here. This is the case that he does not make. 
You don't see our high priest standing before the bar of justice, God the Father, and uh, it's not like this is happening. Hey, Father, Pastor Dave over there, you see him? He did it again. Did it again. He already, you know, committed not to do this again, but there he is again. But listen, he's a pretty good guy. You know, he's trying. Why don't we give him another chance? Let's give him another chance. Why don't we just, you know, hey, let's show him a little mercy. That's not the case. I mean, if that was the case, how how long is he going to keep that up? The case is not like that. The case is more like this. Father, there's Dave. He did it again. He knows it. You know it. I know it. There's no hiding it. Everybody else knows it too. He deserves punishment. His sin deserves justice. It was a sin. It was a transgression before your law. However, on Good Friday, I made a payment for that sin. And it would be unjust of us to actually demand double payment for the same sin. It is finished. He deserves mercy now. My blood cries out for mercy for him. Therefore, let him go. Court is adjourned. Friends, that's an infallible case. That's really good news. If you're listening today and you've never heard that case before, or you're watching online and you've never heard it quite explained like that, do you realize what that means? That means that in the only court that really matters, before the only one whose opinion that really actually matters, God, he says that you've been made right before him because of the blood. And he says you are righteous in his sight, holy, blameless, because of the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ imputed to you. Friends, because of the work of our great high priest who is also a king, Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, who would, ta- who would teach on the high priestly office of Christ, would always close the lecture uh, saying these words to his pastoral students in 1920. Men, God is satisfied. Men, God is satisfied. Men, God is satisfied. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Church, can you imagine if we all really got this deep down in our hearts and souls and we didn't just know this with our head, but we knew deep down that we were made right before God? Can you imagine a church full of people who really understood this spiritual truth? Let's be that church. And let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen? Worship team, would you come as they prepare our hearts for communion? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow before you right now. Thank you for this truth, for preserving this this text, these words that are so relevant to our souls today. Thank you for this unbelievable invitation to come right into your throne room. Thank you, God, that Jesus was our perfect high priest, that he was perfectly qualified to intercede for us. And thank you, God, that he not only is our priest, but that he is also our king, seated on the throne as the unique one who is both priest and king at the same time. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters today as they look back in their life and they look back upon their sin, 
I pray that from today and today on, as we look back and we remember what we have done, we would look back in a different fashion now, and that now when we look back, we would just see a, a, a swelling a swellingness of, of, your, of just gratitude flowing into our hearts like, like an ocean, knowing that when we see our sin, this is exactly how much our Savior loves us. And when we go back there, we build a new memorial back there. We build a new memorial, not in the shape of our sin, but in the perfect shape of the cross of Jesus Christ, knowing that he died for that sin. And that now our, our names are, are graven on his hands and our, our names are written on his heart. And Lord, we belong to him. So God, take this truth and apply it deep down in the hearts of my brothers and sisters, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.